Well, we want to welcome everyone who's here today, and uh, let me begin by saying and joining in and saying Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers that are out there, especially my mother who is back in Alabama, and Bontel who's here this morning, of course, but uh, all of you, Happy Mother's Day. I want to welcome also the visitors that we have, and I know we have several visitors. Uh, one lady expressed to me that she came the first time, really enjoyed it, and uh, she came back to be with us again, so you guys out there continue to be friendly, continue to welcome folks, and uh, we're glad you're here if you're visiting. We want you to come back at every opportunity you have. This morning, I am going to take a look, if you noticed in the bulletin last week, I'm going to do a lesson I call, The Picture Isn't Drawn and the Story Isn't Written. The picture isn't drawn and the story isn't written. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, let's go back and visit an old friend. We'll look at this guy who is standing before a mirror, contemplating himself, contemplating his image. And maybe you're like I am, and I literally do this uh, by myself when I enter sometimes a meditation and so forth. I've told you many times that the night I decided to obey the gospel, be a Christian, I went in the bathroom and looked in a mirror and thought about myself, and that's been a practice of mine for nearly 40 years now. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I see that image and I ask myself a question. I ask, is that my picture? Now there have been times when I was very dissatisfied with that. And that could be both spiritually or physically and uh, other ways in life as well. That I've been very dissatisfied with the picture and I ask myself very clearly, is that my picture? Is that Who I am, is that who I'm going to be, is that my story? And um, I decided that no, it was not my picture. I Yes, it is right now, at this moment, it's the reflection staring back at me, but it's not going to be my picture, it's not going to be my story. And I've been very honest in in, in, in telling you several things that I've seen in the mirror that I decided very clearly to change. So as we stand there... Maybe I need to ask myself very pointedly, am I where I want to be? In my life, am I where I want to be? And maybe that has to do with the physical. Am I, do I want to be this guy that, you know, four, a little over four years ago was about 180 pounds overweight? Do I want to be that guy? Am I where I want to be financially? And maybe you are very secure in your career and you're progressing along nicely, etc., etc., especially if you're older. Uh, Maybe it is that you're younger. But many times in my life, and perhaps in yours as well, whether that just meant that I needed to readjust my budget or I needed to make a major career change, I've looked at my life financially and said, am I where I want to be? What about romantically? Um, You know, am I satisfied with that? Maybe you are, and if you are... You know, and especially if you're seated beside the woman of your dreams or the man of your dreams this morning, then that's fantastic, great. Others of you, perhaps romantically, are not where you want to be. But most importantly, spiritually, are you where you want to be? Or do you want a better picture in your life, a better story? In any of those cases, perhaps others, but is there in any sense, do you want a better story? Do you want a better picture of your life. If you do, then I would liken that to being holy in your weakness. 
In other words, if you're coming up short in any of these areas or others, and you want it to be better, you might consider these areas of life or things that have to do with them to be attributed, at least, to your weaknesses. And yet, if you're not satisfied, and you're looking in the mirror, and you're staring at the reflection, and you're saying, that's not going to be my picture, my story is not yet written, then that's the idea of being holy in your weakness. Now let me go a little further with that with a couple of passages. Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 1 and beginning in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or diverse temptations, the King James says, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh, and the idea is it produces patience, literally endurance. So what does that say? Be glad, be joyful at least, that you have to face temptations, trials in your life. Now why would, I mean that sounds, you know, a little sadistic, so why are sadomasochistic? Why would I do that? Well, because of the effect it's going to have. It's going to produce endurance within you. And it says, let patience or let endurance have its complete work, let it run its full course, that you may be perfect complete and entire, lacking nothing. And if any of you lack faith, or lack wisdom, rather, let him ask of God who gives to all men freely. And we're going to come back to that idea. There's a similar passage, at least on the same general subject, if you turn a few pages to 1 Peter chapter 1, and this was a passage, part of which was just read for us. I want to back up to verse 3, though. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. And we're going to talk about hope this morning. We're going to talk about looking into the mirror, facing your reflection, and expecting more, expecting better of yourself. Expecting your picture to be better, your story to be better. The final chapters better than the early chapters in life. God has begotten us unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible. Heaven is the ultimate inheritance for the Christian. But I want to say something, and I don't mean this blasphemous at all, because I believe very much in heaven, and I believe very much in the rewards of heaven, and that that is the greatest blessing God bestows upon us. However, I don't believe that's all that Scripture promises for the Christian. Jesus made the point in John 10, if you would, if you wanted life more abundantly, if you wanted to be one who could go in and out and find pasture, come to Him. Peter will go on to say in this book, He that will love life, like this life, and see good days in it, let him do various things. Now there is a hope that we have, an expectation that we have, that we can have, not just of heaven, you know, a lousy life now, but heaven in the end. No, but a much better life, a much better picture, a much better story than perhaps we see around us, or perhaps we even face in the mirror. I want to go to what I consider to be a power passage. I heard Wes kind of quote me the other night, telling someone about a power passage. Because I do believe there are power passages in the Bible. And I believe that because of the effect they have on us. One of them is Romans 8. And I'm going to spend the bulk of my time this morning in Romans 8. So if you'd like to, please turn to that passage. 
And I'll kind of break it down, so I'm not going to read it to start with, but we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, and I'm kind of cutting into the middle of one paragraph and taking the first half of the next. So Romans 8, verses 24 through 31, but you'll see the point and why I choose this in just a moment. Let's start with verses 24 and 25. Please read them together with me. In Romans 8, verse 24, Paul says, For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? But if, but if we hope for that which we see not, then we with patience wait for it. Then do we with patience wait for it. We are saved by hope. What is hope? Well, hope has to do with the future, obviously. I hope things will be better in the future. It has to do with the future. But it also has to do, most importantly, with what we expect in it. We hope for heaven. As a Christian, we should not just wish to go to heaven. We should not just wish that somehow, some way, God will overlook everything and take me anyway. I think people live their lives that way, but that's not what Scripture teaches us. No, Scripture teaches us faithfulness to God. Scripture teaches us striving to do our best, etc. And then Scripture teaches us to expect to go to heaven. It is what we expect in the future, and it's always something pleasant. We don't speak of, I hope for a disaster in the future. We fear the negative. But we hope for the pleasant. In other words, things that are going to be good in the future, and I expect to have them, well, that's hope. Notice as the Bible goes on to say here, we are saved by hope. What does that mean? Well, think about it practically. I mean, it means obviously if you expect to go to heaven, you're going to do your best to go there. You're going to strive for it, work for it, etc., etc. But think about the practical side of things in the present. If I hope for a better future, if I expect to have a better physical future, financial future, if I expect to have a better romantic future, if I expect to have a better spiritual future, then I'm going to do certain things right now to get them. It's not just going to happen. We know that. I can wish all day long for a million dollars to fall into my lap, but it ain't going to happen most probably. But if I go to work, if I write out a methodical plan with goal, practical goals, And I say, by this time in my life, I want my net worth to be X amount of dollars, and I'm going to spend the next number of years getting... I can do that. We have the opportunities to do that, or we can gain the opportunities to do that and apply ourselves, and our financial future can be better than the present. And that's true romantically, and that is certainly true physically. If you don't want to weigh 180 pounds more than you should, you're not going to lose it today. There's not going to be a miracle where God comes down here and bing, you're 17 again in great shape. It ain't going to happen. So you've got to look in the mirror and say, okay, I need a plan and I need to go to work. And you can get there. We are saved by hope. I expect, I fully expected five years ago, and we're not five years quite into it, a little over four for me in this plan, But I fully expected at the end of 60 months, if I lost an average of 3 pounds, I'd weigh 180 pounds less. 
And I'm on the course. I'm right there. So the point is we're saved by it. Our life changes by what we expect, when we expect it, really expect it, and know we can have it. We work for it. Now let's go a little further with what Paul said. Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, notice this in verse 26, you do your part. But likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered or explained. And he, and I think he speaks of God the Father in this context here, he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints, and I'm going to read it the way it is in the original, according to God. Let's talk about this passage for a moment. The Spirit helps our infirmities. He helps our weaknesses. We have it. And a lot of us, especially those of us in this audience that are older, we know we have it. We learn what are our shortcomings. We learn what are our tendencies, our traits. We know what pushes our buttons. We know how we get into trouble. We know our weaknesses. And so does God. And so the Spirit helps our infirmities, our weaknesses. Now this word help is interesting. You may want to flip back to Luke chapter 10. And if you do, you will see it is Luke's account of when Jesus visited the home of Mary and Martha. Now that's a strange passage for me to turn to, but stay with me for a moment. You may remember that in this passage, Mary was kind of bustling around in the kitchen and she was getting things ready for Jesus to eat a meal and all of that. And Martha was sitting under the feet of Jesus listening to him teaching. And Mary got more and more annoyed. And some of you ladies can probably well relate to that. You know, you're in there working, everybody else having a high old time, and you're working like mad trying to get everything ready. And you probably can relate to what Mary was going through here. And the Bible says in verse 40, Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him, and I think I got these backwards anyway, just don't matter that. I I do that frequently with these names. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister Mary, of course, has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Now regardless of getting the two women switched there, the point will be the same. The word help is only used in Romans 8 and in Luke 10 and verse 40 because the word means to take hold of what opposes together. It's a compound word. And what it literally means is to help someone with what is opposing them. That's what she wanted. What she wanted, Martha wanted in this passage, was for her sister Mary to come in there and give her that practical help she needed to deal with what at this moment in her time was her opposition. And you know, it can be anything like that. In fact, it is most of the time like that. What you and I face, what opposes us, are the practical everyday things of life. Sure, there are the huge crises in our lives. But that's not what really gets us most of the time. Sometimes. But it's not what gets you most of the time. It's the day-in, day-out, mundane things of life that beat you down and keep you down, and you need help. And sometimes, and let's go back to Romans 8, if you're praying to God, and I don't know if you ever prayed like this, I hope you do. I expect many of you do. And I know I do. 
Sometimes I pray and I start praying about this little thing or that little thing. And I finally just end up saying to God, God, you know the help I need. I need some real help. And it's amazing. The things that will come into life, how circumstances will work out. And you realize as a Christian, you know, behind the scenes, somebody must be helping me, you know. Or this wouldn't work out, and that wouldn't work out, and this wouldn't happen, and that circumstance wouldn't happen. God knows the help I need physically, financially, romantically, and He knows the help I need spiritually. And God is there to help us. In particular, the Holy Spirit is able to help us, wants to help us, and daily is praying right along with us to help us for that practical help we need. Only he's praying with something that are called the groanings. With groanings that cannot be uttered. Now you probably have translations all over the place with this phrase because it's hard to translate. And what it literally means, and I'll tell you, it is another word that is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here, and again Luke uses the word in Acts 7 and verse 34. And I'm not going to turn back there, but it is when God heard the cries of the Israelites in bondage. Remember what He said to Moses? I've heard their distress. I've heard their cries. And I'm going to help them. Well, that's the groanings. And I suspect that what the word means, and of course it just means an inward groaning, an inward rumbling, but it can be expressed in words. But most of the time... It's expressed by things like, if you and I are really going through something, or someone is, we hear them going like, oh, mm. And what it is, is there's no words for it. I can't tell you how bad I feel about this situation. I can cry. I can tell you it hurts me. I can tell you it cuts me to the core. I can tell you I'm depressed about it. But nothing will express what I'm going through. And sometimes we feel like nobody understands, nobody feels this thing that I feel. God does. And that's what He's saying. When the Holy Spirit goes to bat for you and intercedes for you and prays for you, the things that you will find yourself saying, I can't put it into words. You can't. But He can. He knows you that intimately. He is with you every day. And He talks to God in your behalf. He says what you can't say. When you pray and you get to the point where you're saying to God, and I say this a lot, I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit is saying, I got you back. I do know what to say. And He prays. And that's what the passages say. The burdens are being expressed to God, and in both cases, God hears and God delivers. Now let's go further with it. The passage we probably all know in Romans chapter 8, and I meant to put verse 28 there instead of 29, but start with me in 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed in the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. God predestined us. Now, this is true predestination. This is not the kind of predestination or the belief in predestination that somehow X number of millions or thousands or whatever years ago it was before the world was ever created and God ever made a single human being that God looked down in history and said, Michael, I don't want him, but I'll take Everton, I'll take Crystal, and I'll take Juliet, but Montel and Michael, nah, they're bums, we don't want them. That, it is not that. And God never did that, and the Bible never speaks of that, but this is real predestination. This is truly God predestining things to happen. And what it means is that God, what this passage is saying, is two things. First of all, God controls everything that comes into our life. If it comes into our life, He allows it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, and many of us know that, there is no temptation. Remember James saying, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or temptations? Or Peter saying, we're in heaviness in the present, for a time, if need be, through these trials and temptations. We're suffering. Well, we're having those things, we're going through those things, because God allows it. Now, that's hard sometimes. It's hard to grasp that, because it hurts, it doesn't feel good, we don't like it, and we don't want to believe that anything such as this could come into our life. I'm sure Job never contemplated, I would not think, that the disasters that hit him in Job 1 would hit him in his life. God allowed it. And we know that from that story. But the point of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 is, He will only allow what we can handle to come into our life. But the point of those other passages, and the point of Romans 8.28, is that it turns out for good. It's not just merely something you can suffer through. You know, just kind of trudge through and get through it and get over it and get by it. And it's of no positive effect. And you want to look up into heaven and say, man, God, why? That didn't do anything good for me and it's never going to do anything good for me. Why would you let that happen to me? Now, if you approach it that way, you're missing. God allows these things to come into our life. And it must be something He will use to bring glory and notice through us. If any man suffer at his, as a Christian, 1 Peter 4.16, let him acknowledge that what's happening is that the spirit of glory rests on you because of this thing. You're suffering, and it hurts. But the end result is glory that is brought to you through that circumstance. You would not be the person you are. You would not be as great as you are. You would not be better. And if you go back to that image of looking in the mirror, you would stay right where you are if it were not for these things that come into your life. You are made stronger and better and faster, etc., 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 because of these things. It must be something God means for our good. God has a plan. He is God. He knows the plan. I don't. And I need to have the faith in God to look up in God and say, God, this is not how I would have written the story. And God is kind of smiling like a parent and looking at us and saying, that's right, it's not. But it's what you need. 
And you can't get there. You go back to that, I want my picture to be different. I want my story to be different. I know what I see. I know what I see down the road. And I go to God in prayer and I say, God, help me to get there. And God is saying, okay. But here's what it's going to take. You know, I envision five years from now being a guy in his 60s where I can do this and have muscles. Unfortunately, I know what that's going to take. God is going to help me. And God is saying, you want that? (laughs) You know, you're going to get there. But here's what it takes. God will ultimately bring that glory. And in the process of holification, if you will, God will bring us to the image of Jesus Christ. All things work together for good because God predestined that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. We'll get there. We'll get there through all of the things that it takes. And it takes pain sometimes. And it takes temptations and suffering and what we call bad things in life. It takes all those hardships. It takes every stray mark, what seems to be, Stray marks, chance, bad things. Remember, God is allowing it. So it can't be purely by chance, and it can't be a complete stray mark. But sometimes it comes from me, and I do things, and I cause things in my life. And sometimes I look at myself and I say, because I've done this, and because I've done this, and because I've done that, God could never help me. Sure he Who do you think you are to say God is powerless to help you come to the image of Jesus Christ? That's what Satan says. It was a lie from the beginning. It's still a lie. And we need not buy into it. I heard a story years ago, and I'm going to share it with you. And It was an amazing story to me. I've never heard this. A lot of you are Disney fans, a lot of you parents, your children love Disney movies, etc., etc. In this particular lecture, a guy who was the top artist at Disney was giving this lecture about Disney and about the beginning of the company and how years ago, you know, especially years ago when they would make a movie, they'd have to have... I mean, scads of artists come in and draw every single little frame, and I know a lot of you are familiar with that technique, but every frame to make these cartoon figures come alive. Now, this guy started off by saying, we owe all the success at Disney. We owe all these multi-millions and billions of dollars and everything else. We owe it all to a little rat, a little mouse named Mickey. And you go back and you see Walt Disney, you know, he had uh, you know, this character and he had that character. And finally he came up with Mortimer Mouse that morphed into Mickey Mouse. And especially the short, not the first thing he ever did, but the little short he did in 1928 of Steamboat Willie. And Mickey Mouse was born and people fell in love with him and they have been ever since. Now this artist was telling the story in this lecture. And my professor had attended this lecture and he said the artist was talking about you know, budding young, young artists, people that really wanted to make it in the business, coming to apply for a job at Disney. And they would come to apply for this job, and he would give them a test. He'd give them an easel with the paper, you know, the drawing paper. You've seen people do that. 
He'd give them an easel with the drawing paper, and he would say, draw a picture of Mickey Mouse. Now, they knew to expect this cartoon figure of Mickey Mouse, and believe it or not, a really good artist can draw a picture of Mickey Mouse, especially the black and white, in about 30 seconds. I was amazed at that, incidentally, but about 30 seconds, and they were prepared. So then he would turn the sheet, and he would make some kind of mark or smear some ink or whatever it might be on the paper, and he would say, now draw Mickey Mouse. And they were caught off guard. And they would look at it and they would say, yeah, but, but you marked up the paper. He'd say, draw Mickey Mouse. And some of them would try. And a lot of them, he said, would just say, I, I can't. I need a clean sheet of paper. And then the artist, to show them it could be done, he would take the paper and he would draw Mickey Mouse. And he was so good, he'd do it about 15 seconds. And then he would challenge the artist. Make any kind of mark you want to on the paper. And they would try. And some of them maybe would make a circle or a zero. Or others of them would put an X or something like that. And when they'd make the mark, he'd draw Mickey Mouse. The circle, the zero, became an eye or an ear or a button on Mickey's pants. The X became the crease in his shoes or his glove or his pants or something, even under his arm or whatever it might be. Maybe someone would draw a squiggly line. It became Mickey's tail. Somebody else would put a question mark. And he'd use it as the detail inside an ear of Mickey Mouse. And somebody else might draw even a tilde. And if you look very closely at the bottom of the left-hand picture, I chose that because if you look down at Mickey's shoe, two tildes are in Mickey's, Mickey's shoe. It would not matter any mark these people could come up with. That artist in about 15, 20 seconds could draw Mickey Mouse. It was an amazing thing. And finally they realized it doesn't matter. Any stray mark, any smudge, any intentional thing to try to throw you off, it does not matter. This guy can draw Mickey Mouse. And you know what? So can God. You start every day with a blank sheet of paper. Especially if you're a Christian and you ask God for forgiveness when you went to sleep the night before. It's blank. And during the course of this day, you're going to make mistakes. And during the course of this day, there are going to be people that do things to hurt you. And Satan, like a roaring lion, is going to stalk about. He's going to mark up your paper every day. But God can turn that into Jesus Christ. Just like the artist taking a stray mark and making Mickey Mouse, God can make Jesus Christ out of you. And no mark against you, no smudge in life, no sin, no anything that's ever been done is too great, too far beyond the creativity of God to turn it into good and bring Jesus Christ out of your life. God is the great artist of our life. He is the great storyteller. Anything in life can be turned into Jesus Christ through you. If you just yield to God and believe that He has that power. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, but you believe in Jesus, you believe in His power. If you'll confess your faith in Him, if you'll be willing this morning to change your life, to change everything that's wrong and do what's right, 
If this morning you'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins, they'll all be washed away. You'll have that blank, clear sheet of paper. And whatever comes in this life, and you might be here this morning, you might have been baptized, and you look at your life and you say, man, what a mess I've made. Let God draw the picture. You can start by coming this morning. If you need to come, please come. I'll stand.